You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Cocaine, arsenic, heroin, lead. There's no better way to start your day than with these wonderful remedies here at the Victorian Pharmacy. I'm TK, your guide to the past as we uncover the people, events, and little-known facts hidden in the shadows of your old history textbooks. From empress baddies to activist profiles, turkey gods and the history of the toothbrush, tattoos, Pompeii peepees, and everything in between, you can find it all here. There's no telling how far we'll dig or how many historical facts we'll re-examine. No event is too small and no topic is too big because this is for the love of history. Hello, 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 my friends. Welcome to episode 37 of For the Love of History, where we talk about world history, women's history, and weird history. I'm TK, your tour guide to the past. First of all, uh, I would like to say thank you so, so much for your patience this week with the delayed episode. It's the start of the new school year in Japan and my first year as a homeroom teacher for second grade. So I've been a tad overwhelmed and I needed to take a few mental health days uh, for my mental health and my physical health. And what a what better way to segue into our topic for episode 37 than with talking about health. Amazing segue, me. Good job. But I don't know if Victorian healthcare is really what you want, and I'll tell you why today. So, get your insurance card and your favorite backless hospital gown, gotta let that booty breathe, and let's get to it. So before we talk about the drugs and the quackery, which is why you're here, I know, let's talk about what the heck these Victorian people were thinking when it came to medicine and health. The 1800s were some of the sickest times in England and U.S. history. Cholera, syphilis, tuberculosis, and a bunch of other stuff were just running rampant all over the place. And people hadn't quite made the connection that dirty things had germs and germs have disease and disease makes you sick. The idea at the time was that bad smelling things in the air made you sick. One school of thought was that disease came from miasmas that floated around and gave you things like cholera and tuberculosis. The medical thought of the time was that all diseases came from the same miasmas. The way the body reacted to the miasmas and your predispositions, your sex, your social status, and any number of things determined which disease you got. There were diseases associated with the poor and the rich, men and women. It was also believed that the body was a closed system of energy, meaning there was only so much energy in the body for physical, mental, and reproductive systems. They were thought to be in competition with one another, and you had to balance these suckers with medicine and other medical mints. But stinky air and unbalanced humors were not the only causes of sickness. Listed among the general causes of illness were diseased parents, night air, sedentary habits, anger, 
freaking wet feet and an abrupt change of temperature. The causes of fever included bad air, violent emotion, irregular bowels, and extremes of heat and cold. Cholera, which was often an epidemic in many British cities, was said to be caused by rancid or putrid food, also by cold fruits such as cucumbers, melons, and by passionate fear or rage. So God forbid you passionately eat a fruit salad, it would be cholera city for you, my dear. It would be terrible. Stay away from the cucumbers. And I also have to add this, like, ridiculous little side note. It was accepted as a fact at the time, as a fact, that women were smaller versions of men just turned inside out. Therefore, everything that was good for men was bad for women and vice versa, which is just so ridiculous and makes me giggle. Vices were also considered to be reason for sickness. If God loved you, then you wouldn't get sick. If you sinned, then you would obviously get sick. In the 19th century, posters were put up during cholera epidemics, blaming sloth, vice, and bad habits for disease. So basically, you were blaming the victim, the poor sick person. You put all the blame on them, like, mm, You shouldn't have been lazy. You wouldn't have gotten sick. You shouldn't have sinned. You wouldn't have got sick. (laughs) But anyways, this idea of bad smells, unbalanced humors, and other very non-scientific causes of illness persisted until the 1850s. A major breakthrough came during the 1854 cholera outbreak when Dr. John Snow demonstrated that infection was spread not by the miasmas, but by contaminated water from a public pump in the crowded Soho area. He demonstrated his idea by removing the pump handle in favor for a more sanitary way of getting water. Cholera cases went down and he proved his theory, changing Victorian medical practices forever. Hello, my name is Jade and I'm hijacking this podcast to tell you about my podcast, About a Book. On the show, I tell you the real story behind the world's most iconic books. So far, I've done The Handmaid's Tale, Frankenstein, The Great Gatsby, and 1984, to name a few. Ever wonder why Orwell used talking animals to discuss politics? Or how growing up in Ireland inspired Dracula? And how did The Great Gatsby go from being an epic fail to one of the most praised books of all time? Join me as I uncover the wild truth behind fiction. Give it a listen on whatever platform you're listening to this on right now. And for more information, follow me on aboutabook.podcast on Instagram. Talk to you then. Before the 1800s, apothecaries were the bee's knees. They did all the mixing and dispensing of drugs that were prescribed to the patients from doctors. But they really weren't a retail place like we know pharmacies to be today. They also didn't make anything that doctors didn't prescribe, and this is important. Between the 1815 Apothecaries Act and the 1858 Medical Act, the practice of medicine became regulated in Britain. 
apothecaries became subject to rules regarding training, licensing, and practice. Pharmacies, a.k.a. druggists for my U.K. friends, were excluded from this licensing and defined as a distinct profession with their own jurisdiction. Jur- oh, my gosh. Their own jurisdiction. <laughs> Meaning they weren't required to have medical training that was regulated and they didn't just have to fill prescriptions. They could make whatever the hell they wanted. They could be more commercial with their medicine making and thus the modern-ish pharmacy was born or druggists. I guess since we're talking about the UK, I should use druggists, but I'm not going to. I'm going to use the term pharmacy from now on. Uh, and my UK friends, if you're mad about it, take issue up with uh, the BBC. They use the word pharmacy, too, in a bunch of documentaries. So there. BBC is my proof. (laughs) But I digress. The changes that I mentioned above came out of massive reconstruction of British society that followed the Industrial Revolution in the late 18th and early 19th century. Britain's population was increasing rapidly from 6 million in 1750 to like 9 million 50 years later. Cities were expanding even faster as farm workers who were losing their jobs migrated to the nearest town to find work. But there was no work to be found. There was just no jobs in the city. Most Victorians were poor and life was hard, hard as shit. Working conditions, personal hygiene, and living standards for most people were simply abysmal. There were so many epidemics and pandemics and sick people up in the streets, it was bananas. So drugs and medicine were vital. But doctors were expensive. And people couldn't afford them because they didn't have jobs. So they couldn't go to the doctor and get a prescription. And if they couldn't get a prescription, they couldn't go to the apothecary and get their medicine. And if they don't get their medicine, they die. What do they do? Well, my sweet summer child, let me tell you what they did. So going to the doctor was really expensive. But going to the pharmacist was free. Remember all those regulations that happened earlier? Remember pharmacies weren't under the same regulations as apothecaries? Pharmacies would fill prescriptions from doctors, of course, but they also made their own medicine. Going to the doctors was expensive, but going to the pharmacist was free. All you had to do was pay for the medicine. How do you get the medicine, though? So, these sneaky little pharmacists would keep prescriptions from doctors. And you know what's bananas? Prescriptions at the time had full-ass recipes for the medication on them. And the illness the medication was for was also written on them. Pharmacists would keep these prescriptions in a book and just refer to that book when a patient would come in looking for a medication to cure their whatever. These little cheat sheet books would morph into actual books for sale that pharmacists could use. And we're going to talk about a super famous one later on in the episode. In addition to these prescription books that pharmacists would keep as a reference, many of them would just mix their own medication into something that I'm sure you've heard of. Cure-alls. Pharmacy work could be lucrative, but also costly. 100 pharmacies went bankrupt every year in the UK during the 1800s. 
If people weren't getting sick, then you didn't make any money. So you had to supplement with medicines for everyday things like baldness, freckles, backaches, headaches, melancholy, constipation, you name it. Except making individual medications was costly and just took up a ton of time. And thus, the cure-all was born. But once again, because of the lack of regulation, I don't know how many times I've said that today, but pharmacists didn't have to tell their patients what they put in the cure-alls. They didn't have to follow any sort of guidelines. They could put whatever they want. And this is when things started getting tricky. The pharmacy was a pillar of the community. People's lives literally depended on the local pharmacy. But what happened when the medicine they gave you was more dangerous and deadly than your actual sickness? Mid-19th century pharmacists had no fucking clue what they were doing. They were just inventing medicine and discovering shit with no clue how it would affect the human body. (laughs) This was the dawn of drugs like cocaine, meth, weed, arsenic. The 60s was like a kid's camp compared to the drug use that was happening in the Victorian era. Scientists were just stoked to use these new things that they were discovering, and pharmacists were looking to make some money with those new drugs. And this made for a deadly combination. I cannot stress enough that there were hardly any regulations. I promise that's the last time I'm going to say that today. But there were no regulations in the early and mid-19th century, from like the 1800s to 1870. But there were books such as the Merck Manual of Diagnosis and Therapy, which is the oldest continually published English-language medical textbook as well as other pamphlets and booklets that circulated around the pharmacy community. So now we're going to talk about the wacky stuff. And let's start with a few medicines from the Merck Manual of Diagnosis and Therapy. Let's lead off with a popular one, shall we? Good old arsenic. Arsenic was one of the most popular substances in the Victorian era and was prescribed to cure things like anemia, asthma, cancer, blemishes, stomach problems, and, you know, if you were having a little downstairs trouble with Mr. PP not being awake when you wanted him to, the pharmacist would recommend some arsenic. By the mid-19th century, arsenic was being inhaled as vapors, ingested, injected, and given as enemas. And if you don't know what an enema is, I envy you. I had no freaking clue. This research would lead me to a deep understanding of how people cleaned out their colons and their booty holes. But here's the thing. (laughs) If arsenic is ingested, injected, or shoved up your butt, it can cause cancer, cardiovascular disease, and diabetes. If taken while pregnant, it can cause a miscarriage or irreparable brain damage to both the mother and the baby. If you're lucky, you just get severe vomiting and nerve damage, but worst case scenario, you just straight up die. Cocaine was also one of the most popular drugs of the time, and pretty late in the Victorian drug scene, 
pharmacy scene. In 1884, a Viennese ophthalmologist named Carl Kohler discovered that a mild solution of cocaine would, if injected into the eye, deaden nerves so that you wouldn't feel pain. And people flipped the bug out in the first six months of 1885. Over 60 articles on cocaine appeared in the pages of the British Medical Journal. <laughs> people lost it. People could not get enough of cocaine and the Victorian people sang its praises. The newspaper The Scotsman in 1887 wrote, Christ is the patron of infirmaries, hospitals, and homes, and cocaine is one of the blessed instruments of his pain-removing mission. That's uh, pretty high praises for a drug that'll now get you a fair stint in jail. Sigmund Freud even called it a magical drug and started using it to cure people of alcoholism. What the fuck? Do you have a problem with alcohol? Just take cocaine. Not a big deal. <laughs> but cocaine was not limited to simply curing drug addiction. It was also used to cure morphine addiction, depression, anxiety, fatigue, and migraines. And it was available over-the-counter in tonics, powders, wines, and soft drinks. And I think of all of these... Things that cocaine was supposed to cure, fatigue is the only one that would actually be cured by cocaine, but only for a very short period of time. <laughs> for decades, cocaine was standard, over-the-counter remedy for things like seasickness, hay fever, and congestion brought on by colds and flu. Cocaine prescriptions persisted until the 1820s when it was finally made illegal to possess and include in medicine. This is Editing TK. Uh, I meant to say 1920s. Okay, see you later. Enjoy the podcast. Bye. Sad day for the blessed instrument of God's pain-removing mission, I guess. So the last drug we'll talk about today is opium, and more specifically, laudanum. I don't think there's any other drug that is more synonymous with the Victorian era than laudanum, which is a mix of alcohol and opium. Laudanum was used mostly as a pain medication, with some of its most famous users being artists and writers. Thomas D. Quincy, who wrote Confessions of an English Opium Eater, had been introduced to laudanum in 1804 as a treatment for trigeminal neuroglia. <laughs> wow. A disease of the trigeminal nerve that runs down the face. It's like a big old nerve. It's, it's real sensitive. Even things like brushing the teeth or exposure to the wind could trigger a jolt of just excruciating pain. So, of course, De Quincey would love something that could make his life somewhat pain-free, right? So he took a bunch of laudanum. And he wrote of laudanum, Here was a panacea for all human woes. Here was the secret of happiness. In addition to pain management, laudanum was used for headaches, vertigo, deafness, epilepsy, asthma, coughs, shortness of breath, jaundice, urinary complaints, melancholy, and uh, women's troubles. And I'm just, you know, sitting here thinking about my worst period cramp days and wishing I was back in the 1800s for just a little bit of laudanum. A little bit. Okay, no, wait, it could kill me. 
bad TK, no laudanum for you. (laughs) Laudanum can actually cause deadly dehydration, wreak havoc on your bowels, and if taken too much, it will rob you of your mental faculties and kill you. None of these drugs will kill you automatically, but in the wrong combination and dosage, they are deadly. With no formal training and no regulation to speak of, Victorian pharmacists killed innumerable patients and caused a lot of pain and suffering when they were meant to cure and heal. Because of poor record keeping and a lack of standardized medical systems, it's almost impossible to know how many lives were lost due to these Victorian medicines. And these remedies are only from one book. In a 2018 article by Mental Floss, Editor-in-Chief Robert S. Porter, M.D., of the Merck Manual of Diagnosis and Therapy 20th edition, he says that what's most fascinating to me are drugs that have immediate dangerous effects. The bulk of the book is things that simply don't work. Alrighty, my friend, we have come to our final thought for today, and it's a little unusual, and as it was actually the bane of my existence for this episode while I was researching the Victorian Pharmacy series on BBC. Literally any time I typed in Victorian Pharmacy or anything about Victorian medicine in the Google, I got this freaking show, and it was great for a while. But after, you know, a couple days, I wanted other resources. But it's fine. It's a great show. And now I'm bringing it to you for the final thought for today. So the Victorian Pharmacy series was a TV show that aired on BBC for about a month in 2010. Apparently, there is a town called Bliss Hill Victorian Town in, oh my God, forgive me, UK friends, Shore. Shire, Shore, Shropshire, Shropshire. <laughs> that, oh my God. So, Blitz Hill Victorian Town operates as like a living museum. And for my US friends, it's kind of like a colonial Williamsburg, but it seems like a colonial Williamsburg on steroids. People live and work and research Victorian life there. And they are real serious. One of the features is a full-ass working replica of a Victorian pharmacy. And in the TV show, they show you the ins and outs of the pharmacy from the life of the people who work there to how drugs were made and all sorts of fun little tidbits. And my absolute favorite part of the whole freaking show is that they actually (laughs) make a medicine. (laughs) They make a cure-all and give it to the people in the town. And I don't want to give you any spoilers, but you need to watch it. I highly recommend it. It's a good time. It's available on YouTube. And you know I'll leave you the links in the show notes. Alrighty, my dear sweet friend. That's all she wrote. And by she, I mean me. That's all I wrote. (laughs) Once again, thank you so much for your patience in waiting for this episode. If you enjoyed it, why don't you uh, pull out your phone? Message your best friend, send them the link to this or any episode. And if you've got time, leave a few stars, leave a review. It makes me immeasurably happy. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can check out the For the Love of History Patreon and brand new merch store. I need a DJ Khaled button. 
I'm going to work on that. Anyways, and you know everything will be in the link tree on Instagram and Twitter. I appreciate you so much. If you need to take a few mental health days or weeks or whatever, let this be your sign to do so. Take care of yourself. Drink water. Give yourself a hug. Be kind to yourself. And I will see you on April 7th for episode 38, The Night Witches of World War II. Okay, bye! Why is there a metronome right now? Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay.